Hello, you are listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Hebert with Environmental Defense Fund. And I'm Simone Malaz with Restore or Retreat. And it is a gloomy March day, Simone. I hope you're in store or you're ready for the rain that's in store. I hear it's a gloomy day all across the world too, Jacques. So, but we'll get to that in just a second. Um, yes, Jacques, I feel like um, I'm always a student. Um, I learned more about turbines and some other things like that this morning. And so, um, you know, it's always interesting when, um, you know, just heavy rainfalls can can impact the city the way that this does, especially like even vaccinations and those kinds of things. So um, never a dull day here in Louisiana weather-wise, for sure. That is for sure. And let's just hope, you know, the pumps work and that the rain isn't too bad. I think my garden will enjoy it, yes. but like we don't need... Yes. We don't need street flooding or anything like that. So um, I did uh, see your azaleas yeah. look beautiful. Oh, thank you for noticing. Yes, my azaleas are superb this year. Um, they are always the first to kind of bloom and come in, and they're just looking amazing. So very grateful for for that. And then, you know, before before long, our, our jasmine will start to, to oh, nice. bloom. Uh, I will say my satsuma tree has little buds on it again. Mm. So the satsumas are going. So yeah, I, this is I love this time of year just because of everything being in bloom and the weather is amazing for the most part. I will say my allergies have been a little a little out of control. <laughs> and your but car is probably dusted in green, right? Exactly, but it's all worth it. So I'm so excited um, for today's guest. You know, we've featured a number of different authors um, over the years on Delta Dispatches, and I came across this book and just found it. One, so incredibly relevant to the topics we discuss on this show, but also fascinating in terms of being a look back at decisions that have been made over centuries in terms of controlling the river, trying to live with the river, um, and the impacts that those uh, have had, those decisions have had on our life today in the Mississippi River Delta. So I thought it was especially timely and uh, you know relevant topic. So I'm so excited to bring on Adam Mandelman. Um, he's an environmental historian and experienced designer. He earned his PhD in geography from the University of Wisconsin-Madison and currently lives in Amsterdam, where he works on user research and experience design in the cultural se- sector. And he's going to be talking about his new book, The Place with No Edge. It's a book about people's dreams of mastering nature through technology in one of the wettest, most mm-hmm. unruly landscapes in North America. I like that Published- description of us. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> especially today, right? Yes. Published with Louisiana State University Press in April of 2020, it chronicles three centuries of European efforts to tame the Mississippi River Delta, an environment defined by floods and wetlands. So without much ado, Welcome to Delta Dispatches, Adam. How are things in Amsterdam for you? How's the weather? Hi, Jacques. Hi, Simone. Uh, thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, uh, things are all right, as, as good as can be expected in these, um, in these times over here. Uh, the weather is similarly gloomy, but I think, you know, Amsterdam has about 250 cloudy days a year or something like that. So it's kind of to be expected. (laughs) Did you know Uh, you were getting into that, Adam? (laughs) Yeah, you know. I mean, I moved here from Wisconsin, right? So it it beats the uh, minus 20 temperatures in winter. But um, yeah, my garden is consisting mostly of moss from all the rain all the time. But, you know. (laughs) 
I do love a nice moss or peat garden as well, yes. So Adam, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and your background. Yeah, so as Jacques mentioned, I, uh, I earned my PhD in 2016 at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. That degree was in geography, although the work I did was something called environmental history, which is sort of looking at people's relationships to nature over time, um, not just how we might transform the environment, but also our uh, our values about nature, our hopes and dreams for uh, the non-human world around us, um, all that kind of cultural, historical stuff as well. Um, but over the last couple of years, I transitioned into this new career in uh, digital design. Um, and, you know, there's still some overlaps with the work I used to do in that, you know, I care a lot about technology and how it, uh, it shapes the way we relate to each other and the environment. And that was a big question in my book. Yeah. And as we mentioned earlier in the show, it's certainly a very timely and relevant topic in these times, you know, places around the world, I'm sure, grappling with these questions and as it's exacerbated by climate change. So I do want to dig into your book, The Place with No Edge, An Intimate History of People, Technology and the Mississippi River Delta. I love that title. So what made you want to write a book about the Mississippi River Delta specifically? Yeah, so it, it was sort of a kind of strange winding path. Uh, my previous research had been about this uh, National Historical Trail in Hawaii. Um, and I was really interested in these places that I was thinking of as lines on the map. And so for my next project, I was sort of searching for other lines on the map and hit a bunch of dead ends and until I sort of happened to take a trip down from Wisconsin to Louisiana along the Mississippi in 2010 and started thinking about the river as this line on the map. But as I started digging into the research, I started to learn more about the Delta as this sort of enormous stretch of land in constant flux full of all sorts of paradoxes and, and all sorts of kind of fascinating stories about human efforts to try and tame this really unstable landscape and create stability and profit and even meaning um, from this this strange environment. So I was kind of hooked on all those stories and, you know, did away with the whole line on the map idea and, and just started focusing on the Delta. So, so there's, you know, you, you cover lots of time about how to control the river, but, but let's just for the sake of time, go back to the European settlers. What did they see when they got here? What was the Mississippi river like when, when they first saw it? Yeah. So, I mean, humans have occupied the Delta for thousands of years, um, almost really since it started sort of growing out uh, and extending the Gulf Coast into the Gulf of Mexico. Um, and those sort of indigenous residents of the Delta had been, you know, adapting to the landscape, migrating, depending on seasonal flooding, transforming the landscape, often with shell mounds or burning, digging ditches, raising vegetables or pl other plants, trees, and so on. But when Europeans arrived, that was all kind of invisible to them. Um, because, for example, the idea of, you know, seasonally migrating across a landscape is just sort of really impossible in the European imagination because, you know, that culture and civilization is so used to uh, kind of, you know, living in one place and developing one place at a time. And similarly, they were so, they found this, you know, environment so unfamiliar with it's sort of constant invasions of water and sediment and muck and these 
strange water adapted plants and animals and you know these plagues of mosquitoes and alligators and so on, uh, they, they couldn't really see the subtle changes that the indigenous population had been making to this environment to make it a little more imaginable. Um, so really they saw a place that kind of was threatening, uh, menacing, uh, a, a disease environment, um, and that it was at the time, you know, at the, at the, in the late uh, 17th century, early 18th century, seen much more for its strategic value in controlling the mouth of the Mississippi River and access to that upstream watershed um, for colonizing the rest of the interior of the continent. Uh, anyway, so more, much more for strategic, strategic value than, than for natural resources, although those would become more recognizable later. Um, yeah. I, I love, Adam, that you use the term paradox, because I you know when I think about the Mississippi River Delta, that's definitely something that comes to mind, right? On the one hand, like you said, it presented to the Europeans this kind of strategic, um, you know, landscape that they could kind of control the the trade on the river kind of up throughout the continent. Um, you know, there's a full of bounty and natural resources as a result of the river and the Delta. But at the same time, it, it was a landscape that was vulnerable and changing. So and as you wrote the book, I mean, did you find that paradox coming through over the centuries and over kind of the different populations that occupied the Delta? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that I think um, one of the main things you have to realize about the Delta, and I think plenty of your listeners know this, but um, and, and I should say when I say the Delta, I don't mean just the bird's foot at the very end of the river mouth that's peeking out into the Gulf of Mexico. I mean, sort of a big swath of land that stretches, say, from if you drew a line from somewhere north of Baton Rouge out to uh, 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 the Lake Vermilion, and then a similarly a line out to Slidell, it'd be that entire stretch of coast, right? Uh, this was all created by the river over 8,000 years, and which is to say that all land in this place came from water. And I think this is a fundamental paradox that uh, a lot of new arrivals, Europeans, didn't, didn't really understand, right? Um, and I think a really great story that kind of illustrates this is when Iberville and Bienville found the first fort in the Delta, the first European fort, um, about 320 years ago. This was about 40 river miles below New Orleans in a much lower, swampier um, stretch of the delta than, than New Orleans is presently located. That site today would be about where the village of Phoenix is. But they, they chose this spot based on some local Bayagula indigenous knowledge that, uh, in their words, would not be subject to overflow. But it turned out to be really miserable. Four months of the year, water there would come up to soldiers' knees, and fields were being constantly wiped out by river flooding and storm surge. And it was really hard to survive there. And, you know, we're just speculating. It's sort of impossible to know this. But assuming no sort of malicious manipulation on the ha behalf of the Bayagula, sort of feeding them bad information, um, I think their indigenous informants were actually telling them, yeah, this place is not subject to overflow for the eight months of the year it's inhabitable, right? Because they understood that this was a place of land and water. Whereas I think Europeans came and sort of brought these assumptions about stable land with them um, and couldn't really understand this kind of shifting environment. 
So uh, Adam, I guess that tells you the kind of person that I am. I thought Im- immediately to they were like kind of making fun of him, right? Yeah, you guys go over there, right? Y'all go yeah. hang. But 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 you make a a a great point. Well well said. Is that you know for them that that was stability. They just knew how to kind of move with it. And so so I think that's a a really good point there. Um, we, you know, we, we always, even to this day, are, are trying to attempt to control the Mississippi River, either for flood protection purposes, but actually Jacques and I spend a lot of time talking about harnessing the power of the river to actually reestablish that connection to the Delta. So, but, so let's just talk about those attempts to control the river over time and how those efforts evolved. And you talk about some very specific interventions um, that have gone on in the Delta over time. So I, I just want to bring those to light to some people. So we'll play like a little game. I'll, I'll call something out to you and you tell me what they tried to do with that. Sure okay. Thing. So, <laughs> sure so tell us about rice blooms. Right. So, well, and one thing I would just say is that um, although a lot of the book is about people's attempts to control the river and the Delta, um, I should say that it's really about people's attempts to control nature more broadly defined in this landscape. So um, rice flumes weren't so much an effort to control the river itself, but uh, an attempt to manage uh, extra flows of water off of it. So um you know, these things date back to at least the turn of the 19th century, and they come up in response to the more uh, widely, wide levying of the riverbank. Um, basically, the story is, is that rice planters, you know, had found finally a crop that worked in this really wet, soggy landscape. But as the river got more and more um, levied, sort of continuously, they couldn't really find the floodwaters to inundate their rice fields. At first, they start cutting the levees, um, but pretty soon that puts them in bad graces with some of their neighbors not growing rice. So they create this thing called a rice flume, which is like a a culvert, kind of a a long hollow box made out of cypress wood that's buried in the levee and used to kind of channel high water through the levee onto their land. So, And this kind of evolves over time, but it's really interesting because it represents a whole community of people and a whole way of life in the Delta, who are actively inviting flood water onto their land at different times of the year. Okay, so let's uh, keep the quiz going. You answered that correctly. (laughs) Uh, Let's talk about pull boats. Yeah, so um, pull boats were one of these things that were developed to try and uh, more efficiently extract one of the most prized natural resources in the Delta in the 18th and 19th century, and that was uh, cypress lumber. Um, Cypress logging had started up in the sort of 1730s and and later, um, but it it was really hard to access these cypress trees because they're in swamps that, you know, are too soggy to get a wheeled cart in there or animals to pull these logs out, and they weren't kind of wet enough to get a boat all the way in there. Um, and so for up until the sort of 1870s, what most people did was they went out there when the swamps were drier, uh, girdled the trees, let them kind of die standing up. And then when the floods came in, they'd paddle out um, in little boats and fell the trees and then float them out. But by the 1870s, um, there's this new invention, which is basically like a, a steam powered uh, logging boat 
that um, a dredger would go out into the swamp forest, dredge out a canal uh, to give access to this boat. It would go out, anchor, and then run these cables out into the forest and yank out, you know, tens of hundreds of thousands of board feet of cypress um, and create these really interesting radial patterns, right? Because you can imagine if you extract from a single point in every direction around you and your cable's a fixed length, what do you get? Well, it's kind of like drawing a compass circle. And you can still see um, the marks of these pole boat logging uh, operations today in satellite images of uh, Manchak Swamp. Um, which is kind of fascinating. Yeah, it, it, it's, it is fascinating. And I actually, I've had the opportunity to go on kind of coastal flyovers um, over some of these areas. And I, that's one uh, kind of, I guess, feature on the landscape now that you see still to this day over Eastern St. Bernard Parish, where they did that kind of logging um, just in one area. So um, I'm going to take over the quiz for now. So uh, let's keep going with a few more. And then we'll, we'll talk about one of the big um, attempts to control uh, you know, the river specifically, but look, what about geophysical surveys? Yeah. So um, this is, this is again, sort of uh, not so much a, an attempt to control nature as well, indirectly, it, it really transforms nature in the Delta. So up until 1901, no one really thought there was oil on the Gulf coast. And that all changes with the discovery of spindle top in Texas which um, showed that oil kind of accumulated on these geological structures called salt domes. Um, and that sort of unleashed this whole like bonanza of people looking for salt domes all over the Gulf Coast. And usually they were little hills. But then by the 1920s, um, there were some new tools that sort of came on the scene, new, new technologies, things like a torsion balance, which sounds kind of strange, but it measures minute gravitational changes, um, and then some seismic technologies that allowed people to allowed petroleum engineers to start discovering that these salt domes were hidden even in places where there wasn't like a little hill or a little mound. And pretty soon people realized that there could be salt domes and therefore oil uh, hidden under some of the most sort of flat, featureless mudflats, swamps, marshes of, of the Louisiana coast, of the Delta. And that discovery basically makes a whole unrecognized, hidden, invisible part of Delta nature is suddenly visible as this extremely valuable resource. And that paves the way for massive oil well drilling and, of course, oil uh, petroleum canal dredging all across the Delta coast um, in beginning in the late 1920s and eventually leading to the you know, 10,000 plus miles of petroleum canals that have sort of pockmarked the Delta coast and contributed to um, coastal erosion over the last, you know, 80 years, 90 years. So Adam, I, I, you cover a few other ones that folks may not be familiar with. So I highly encourage uh, people get the book and, and read about different attempts to, like you said, um, control nature in the Delta. Um, but one area that, you know, we focus a, a lot on today um, still are levees, right? And um, we know that levees were constructed pretty early on from European settlers, um, and they evolved over time, ultimately leading to what we know of today as the federal levees as part of the Mississippi River and tributary system um, following you know, the Great Flood of 1927. So let's talk a little bit about levees. 
Um, were there, you know, debates early on on whether or not to use levees in terms of protecting from river floods? Yeah, absolutely. Um, in fact, and, and some of your listeners might be already familiar with this, there was one big debate called the levees only debate. Um, and probably one of the more consequential arguments in Louisiana history, at least from, you know, sort of some of the, the uh, indirect impacts that it's had uh, on the Gulf Coast. Um, John Barry, the author, chronicles this whole saga around the levees only debate really beautifully in his book, Rising Tide. He's the same John Barry who led the Southeast Louisiana Flood Protection Authority East to bring... Um, that 2013 lawsuit against the oil industry for wetlands damage. But basically the story goes um, as early as the 1840s, you have all these engineers arguing over the best approach to flood control. And um, one side sort of uh, argued for a diversified approach that included outlets and reservoirs. Um, And another side argued that levees and only levees would be the thing that could protect the state from um, from future flood. And, you know, the debates around this are really complicated and involve really, uh, really interesting personalities, um, some of whom were basically cutting off their nose to spite their face uh, and making arguments that didn't really make sense for the sake of their own ego. But you, you kind of have to read about it to get the whole thing. But um, basically, levies only wins out. And that's essentially what leads to the Great Flood of 1927, because if you only barricade the river in uh, and you don't give it any outlet whatsoever, over time, um, it becomes more and more constrained and those floodwaters uh, have nowhere to go. And you end up having the massive kinds of crevasses and flooding that we saw in 1927. And that's really the last time that Southern Louisiana and the Delta saw any kind of sediment-laden floodwater from the Mississippi spread over the landscape in any meaningful sense, um, which, you know, has pretty serious consequences for the Delta, as, as you know, right? Without new sediments, it, it continues to sort of subside and shrink and crack up. Yeah, it's interesting that we're coming on almost the century of, of kind of that, that decision. I remember reading... Um, I think from a National Geographic excerpt about kind of that debate and and the people that made those decisions, recognizing that there would be consequences for future generations. So is that something that, you know, folks, I guess, considered at the time, but figured, well, that'll be kind of for generations down the line to figure out and manage? I mean, were they aware of the consequences of levying off the Mississippi River? Yeah. So, I mean, it's funny, even after 1927, the Army Corps does embrace some alternative approaches to flood control, including outlets and spillways like Morganza. Um, But the problem is, is this system is still really converting the delta into plumbing. There's no real place for the sediment to really spread out and replenish the landscape. And so we're still living with you know, these decisions still made in the 20s and 30s and and onwards, right? Um, And yeah, there were folks that sort of had some clue that this could become a problem, especially in the late 1890s. There there was this National Geographic article by an engineer named Elmer Cortell, um, who sort of said, hey, you know, perfectly levying this environment will lead to massive subsidence and erosion. But he assumed at the time that, that, um, the state and the, and the nation would have the resources to be able to like 
find some technological solution to that by now, which obviously we haven't. I mean, this is, this is sort of like one of one of these attempts to control nature and everything that can go wrong. It becomes very complicated uh, to try and solve, right? So, Adam, let's fast forward, um, which I'm sure every historian loves to do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about the impacts all these efforts had. You think how that ties to Hurricane Katrina? Yeah. So, I mean, this is it, it's always sort of, you know, uh, dangerous to try and make these these kinds of mass analyses and draw all these different historical threads together. But I think a lot of historians really agree that these decisions kind of combined helped create the state of vulnerability that New Orleans was in at the time of Katrina and continues to be, and not just New Orleans, but the rest of the Gulf Coast. Um, levying uh, had prevented, as I've said, sediments from reaching this landscape and replenishing it um, and, and sort of offsetting subsidence and, and compression of these sort of um, spongy delta soils, um, dredging of the coast, uh, for petroleum canals and petroleum exploration had not only pulled out a bunch, turned a bunch of wetland into just open water on its own, but allowed saltwater to intrude and, and kill off wetland plants. Um, the piles of sediment that dredgers leave on, 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 the, on spoil banks along the canals also interrupted um, local hydrology and caused further wetland die-off. And so that subsidence of the delta from being levied is combined with rapid erosion from these canals. And then on top of that, you have something like cypress logging from the whole pull boating industrial cypress industry, completely denuding huge swaths of wetland um, and, and sort of eliminating one of these major uh, buffers to storm surge. So all of that kind of combines uh, to leave New Orleans in a very vulnerable place as far as hurricanes and, and also the rest of the Delta. Yeah, I mean, we definitely saw that kind of come to bear. And as you mentioned, it's a kind of state of vulnerability that continues to exist today, unfortunately. And, you know, thinking about the river, we've had numerous back-to-back -back years, knock on wood, that this year will skip. But, you know, where the river's been at kind of flood stage for extended periods of time, requiring the use of the Bonacary Spillway, we've had you know, the most active hurricane season ever recorded last year. So a lot of challenges. But I mean, in terms of uh, looking ahead, do you see signs of hope or opportunity in terms of how we better live with nature and kind of confront some of these challenges on the Mississippi River Delta? Yeah, I mean, well, I think the biggest reason for hope is is that humans are um, remarkably full of ingenuity. Um, and uh, there's there's not much choice, right? And I think um, increasingly people are recognizing that um, these kinds of crises need attention, um, which helps with the political will um, and helps with maybe some of the acceptance of trade-offs. I think I think that's that's one of the biggest things actually is that there's no you know once these kinds of um, really complicated sets of environmental conditions are established, there's no real going back. You have to um, accept trade-offs. You have to sort of enter into this relationship with the non-human world of sort of mutual dependence and responsibility. So um, much like the cutover cypress forests can't really regenerate in Louisiana now without 
human assistance, you know, lots of time and energy and money invested in planting cypress forests and nursing them back to um, full growth. It's the same with the, the Gulf Coast, the Delta Coast, right? It's, it's not going to just come back. We need to actively engage um, with, you know, redistributing sediment, whether through dredging or diversions or other new approaches to sort of protecting this environment. And then we also have to maybe accept that not all of it is going to come back, right? And find new ways of living in uh, this place. Um, and so I, I say, I'd say another reason for hope here is that, you know, as challenging and um, uh, difficult as it is, especially for, for some communities, it's also a huge opportunity for really uh, new creative approaches to living in a Delta environment. So Adam, whenever I, I see books and, and even things like John Barry's book and your book, I think about what it took to must, to put that together. I think about how you had to write like every single word, probably two and three times or like, you know, wordsmith it, those kinds of things. Just tell us a little bit about what's required to do the research and putting together a book like this. Um, or even, you know, you talked about your work in Hawaii, those kinds of things. Just talk about the process if you can. I'd say probably each word I rewrote 10 times, um, you know, first, first uh, as a doctoral dissertation and then rewriting that extensively to make it into a, a book that people might want to read. Um, yeah, you know, as, as an environmental historian, um, I really take landscape seriously. So uh, I made several trips to uh, Louisiana um, and exploring the region around the Delta and around New Orleans um, to try and sort of immerse myself in the landscape, but also to try and see up close uh, what the effects of these centuries of human involvement in this place were. Um, there's sort of a tradition in the field of landscape reading. So that was really key to my process alongside, you know, digging in the archives, looking at all these dusty documents that maybe people haven't looked at in decades or maybe even centuries. Um, and then, you know, of course, interviewing people and, and, and really, you know, none of this work is possible without all the work of previous writers and historians and so on. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's sort of the hardest part is finding the story that, that connects it all. Right. And I think it, it took years to even figure out what I was writing about. That is such an impressive undertaking and, and highly encourage people to, to get the book and, and read it and dig into your amazing resource, research and storytelling around, um, you know, the Mississippi River Delta over, over centuries, right? So it's incredibly impressive. I'm curious in doing the research and writing the book, if anything kind of most surprised you or, or if you learned anything that really you found interesting that you just you didn't know really before going into it. Yeah, I mean, I'd say there are two, um, well, tons, but two that really stand out. One, these rice flumes that we talked about a little bit earlier. It was really fascinating to find, to discover this sort of whole way of life um, in 19th century southern Louisiana that was built around inviting floodwater onto your land. We don't really think about people wanting to do that. Um, and all the conflicts that sort of ensued around that. It was really fascinating. And another one is that um, I discovered that all deltas, all river deltas in the world entering, you know, that enter into an ocean of some sort that are not inland deltas are all roughly the same age. They all started forming 
about 8,000 years ago when sea levels stabilized after the last ice age. So it's really sort of interesting to think about, you know, you can maybe sort of take the Mississippi River Delta and look at other deltas in the world and see the challenges that they're facing um, and how things have sort of played out differently depending on the different decisions that humans have made in those places. Um, so, Adam, uh, you're in Amsterdam right now, and, and we've learned a lot from the Dutch about, about living with water. You know, they're, they're really proud of their water management system. Are, are you seeing parallels there now that, now that you're there and you know so much about, about Louisiana and, and us trying to live with water? Yeah, I mean, it, it is a really different case. Uh, the, the Dutch have been engineering their coast since the 1600s, at least, I think, um, and have sort of learned some hard lessons early on that I think uh, in the U.S. we've been a little late to. I do think that the conversation since Katrina, especially in looking towards um, Dutch approaches to flood control and mitigation, living with water, have been really helpful. Um, I know folks like Wagner and Ball Architects in New Orleans, and then a bunch of the folks in the Changing Course competition from a few years ago are really doing this um, sort of international collaboration with the Dutch. But there are some really interesting projects here based on, you know, the Dutch are even sort of changing their rigid approach to controlling water as well. That There's a, a project called Room for the River. Where, right, where, right. I've heard an, about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, and, and just this whole idea of, of designing with nature. Um, I think the real difference is, you know, government regulation and investment in Europe is very different sometimes from the United States. Yeah, that's a very good point. And what I was going to bring up is that really the Dutch have just prioritized this. They have made it a national priority. Um, but it is interesting to think about that they're adapting as well, especially with room for the river. And because um, I know a lot of of the Dutch methods were just like hard infrastructure. And, and look, it's, you know, two different coastlines and, you know, all these other kinds of things. But that doesn't mean there's still not a lot to learn from each other. Absolutely. And that's sort of what I was alluding to before. The Dutch definitely took similar approaches with really hard infrastructure um, for, you know, decades, if not centuries. And, and only now in recent decades have been sort of reevaluating some of those approaches. And, you know, they also met, didn't end up pockmarking their coastline with tens of thousands of miles of petroleum canals, which um, certainly hasn't helped Louisiana's situation. Well, Adam, I mean, this has been such a fascinating conversation. And I mean, we could probably go on for hours, no doubt. Um, So I hope it's a really good uh, teaser for everyone and kind of a call to go and and purchase the book, The Place with No Edge. Um, Where can folks go to actually get the book and read it? Because I highly recommend all of our Delta Dispatchers listeners go. It's your homework assignment. There will be pop quizzes on future episodes. (laughs) So go and and read The Place with No Edge. But where can they get the book? Yeah, thanks so much, Jacques, for those kind words. Um, You know, I always like to say support your local bookstore. If they don't have it in stock, I'm sure they could order it. Um, uh, Also, bookshop.org has it. And of course, you can get it from LSU Press. Um, and if you must, you can order it from Amazon. Yeah. I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure Octavia books or any of our local bookstores yeah. will be glad to get it for you or wherever exactly. you may be. Definitely yeah. support your local demand, bookstore. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Create a demand on the local level. I, I just have one little tiny correction. I think, um, Jacques meant to say 
award-winning book um, because it, it you have won the award for the 2020 John Rinkerhoff Jackson Prize. That sounds important. Uh, it, yeah, that's a prize awarded by the um, Association of American Geographers. Yeah, uh, I was I was really happy to to receive that because J.B. Jackson is sort of a um, was a, a really inspirational figure. He was a landscape architect that really wrote a lot about humans and their cultural landscape. And so, um, yeah, that was just a really nice thing to receive this year. Well, congratulations, Adam. And I did not mean to to uh, skip that. So I'm glad <laughs> Simone pointed it out. Um, so we have a little tradition on Delta Dispatches. We like to ask our guests a little bit of a fun question just to get to know them beyond their you know profession. So curious um, in thinking about, uh, assuming you were, you were here doing some research for while you're writing the book, what is the best thing you ate while you were in Louisiana? <laughs> um, uh, you're probably going to laugh at me, but uh, I think there's, there's this little convenience store uh, called Verdi Mart and uh, in at this sort of edge of uh, the French Quarter, and they just made a really amazing sandwich. But uh, this, it's kind of sad given all the great food in, in Louisiana, but... Um, yeah, for some reason that stuck with me. I don't know why. <laughs> I have to tell you, my uh, my cousin is an airplane pilot, and he swears places like that have the best food. No matter where he goes, he's like, go to the convenience store, go to a place like that, because <laughs> yeah. they usually have the the best food. So, uh, no judgment here. No judgment here. <laughs> that is it. That is a good answer. <laughs> well, thank you, Adam. It's been a real pleasure to have you on. I've learned a lot, and and I would love for people to go try to find your book. Yeah, thank you so much for uh, spending the time and inviting me on here. It was really great to chat with you both. Shock and I really just want the invitation to Amsterdam. So, uh... <laughs> well, yeah, hey, anytime. I can give you a tour of the Delta Works. Yeah. Awesome. We would love there to take you There we go, on that. Simone. Delta dispatches on the road, right? So oh, it is time for our coastal stat of the week. And this is from our friends at Quipra, and it's relevant to today's discussion. They say that the Mississippi River has had a profound effect on the landforms of coastal Louisiana. The entire area is the product of sediment deposition following the latest rise in sea levels about 5,000 years ago. Each Mississippi River deltaic cycle was initiated by a gradual capture of the Mississippi River by a distributary, which offered a shorter route to the Gulf of Mexico. After abandonment of an older delta lobe, which would cut off primary supply of fresh water and sediment, an area would undergo compaction, subsidence, and erosion. The old delta lobe would begin to retreat as the gulf advanced, forming lakes, bays, and sounds. Concurrently, a new delta lobe would begin in its advance gulfward. This deltaic process has, over the past 5,000, 6,000 years, caused the coastline of South Louisiana to advance gulfward from 15 to 50 miles, forming the present-day coastal plain. I'm learning so much today, Jacques. Thank you for sharing. I have the Coastal Voice of the Week. We have Shannon in Buris, Louisiana. And Shannon says, living in Plaquemines Parish, there are only a few miles of land where I live between the river levee and the gulf levee. I have neighbors and friends who lose land every year due to the diminishing coasts. The environment and landscape and its changes very directly affect the lives of the people living in this parish. Thank you, Shannon, for lending us your voice. And just remember that you can add your own coastal voice at MississippiRiverDelta.org slash restore dash the dash coast. Shock, you have another reminder for some of our friends, too. 
Yeah, just a reminder that we'll have one more virtual community conversation on the Mid-Barataria Sediment Diversion with experts from Environmental Law Institute, the Louisiana TIG, um, as well as the Coastal Protection Restoration Authority. And this will be an opportunity for you to come and learn about this project, ask questions about what is in the documents, and also learn how you can give feedback on both the draft environmental impact statement as well as the draft restoration plan through formal public comments. So our next and final community conversation will be on April 20th between 12 and 1 p.m. Central. And you can go to our Mississippi River Delta Facebook page to find that event and register. So please come learn about these important documents and importantly how you can give feedback and comments during the public comment process. And with that, I would just like to once again thank Adam so much for being on. It was such an interesting and fascinating conversation. Highly encourage folks to go and pick up a copy of his book, The Place with No Edge. And until next time, we will be back. We'll see y'all later, alligators. <laughs>